In your Bible today, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter number 18, in your Bible, if you will turn there with me and then stand, please, as we will read God's Word together. I said Matthew 18, I meant Matthew 16. Let me get it right. But it's just two pages away, right? Matthew chapter number 16, and the subject today is the foundation of our church, the foundation of our church. If you want to understand our church, then listen today. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou wilt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ, and you may be seated. Well, we're, su- we're four Sundays now before our 50th anniversary. In one month, our church will have arrived at that 50-year marker in its existence. And I feel, uh, uh, as, as the pastor of our church, I feel a real special sense of need that I make every single one of these messages as significant as I can, as basic, as biblical, and that I'm almost starting over and reestablishing the foundation for our church anew. So I hope you will listen. I hope you will try to comprehend and to understand. I hope you have something that if I say something reasonably intelligent, you might even capture it and put it on a piece of paper and, and keep it for yourself, for your spiritual betterment through the years. I was raised in church. It was priority. Our family never one time in my existence said, are we going to church tomorrow? If you have to ask that question, you haven't quite gotten it yet. You don't decide every Saturday night, well, are we going to church tomorrow? It's the Lord's day. We're going to church. And I never recall one time mom and dad saying to me, well, Billy, do you want to go to church? That would have gotten a bigger laugh than you gave me with just mom and daddy. That was a given. We were going to church, and we didn't vote on it, and we didn't pray about it, and we didn't check the weather. We knew that Sunday morning was coming, and it was the Lord's day, and we would be in church. We even my mama made me polish my shoes on Saturday night. 
What did that have to do with my spiritual life? I don't know, but I still polish my shoes sometimes on Saturday night. Those habits got well ingrained. My mom and dad loved the church. They taught me to love the church. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church. He loves the church. It is his bride. You cannot really love Jesus and not love the church. It's that simple. It's his body. He is the head. It's his bride. The Bible gives all those analogies. If you love Jesus, you love the church. If you were to call me and say, we're having a little dinner party over at my house, and I'd like to invite you to come, Pastor, but uh, leave Norma home. I'd say, well, I guess I'm counted out too. And you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want you to say, you know, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but leave the bride home. No, he wants us to honor his bride like we honor him because we, in many senses, are the same. Now, there are buildings all over every town that has on the sign in front of them, church. That doesn't necessarily make you a church. What is it that makes a church a church? Because you can have a building, you can meet on Sunday, you can have services, you can sing songs, somebody can even preach, and it doesn't necessarily have the marks of a church. I wanted to talk to you about what is the church today, And especially do I want to emphasize the first point. What is the foundation on what is the church built? And so let's look at number one, the foundation of the church. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his his disciples here two questions. In verse number 13, Jesus said to them, Whom do men say that I am? And then they said, Well, some people say you're... Uh, John the Baptist, some, uh, some people are saying that you are Elijah who is raised from the dead. Uh, other people say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets that's resurrected. Uh, there's all kinds of opinions about who you are, Jesus. And uh, people are talking about you, but they can't quite decide on who you are. And then Jesus makes the question personal. In verse 15, he says to them, well, who do you say that I am? And today, I might ask that question of you if we had time personally. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Because that's a vital, vital teaching of the Word of God. And Peter then gave his answer. The time of this occurrence here is though it's in the middle of the book of Matthew, it's only six months before Jesus Christ was to go to the cross and die. So it's two and a half years into his three-year ministry. And uh, up to this point in time, Jesus had never revealed to them who he was. He didn't come one day and make a statement to them and say, I'm the promised Messiah. He didn't come to them one day and say, I am God in the flesh, I'm deity. He had never said that. They had just become his followers, and they were following him, and they were observing his life. 
And so they had observed his character. How did he react when he was under stress? How did he react when things were going against him? How did he react when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and literally insulted him? How did Jesus Christ respond when people, poor people came to him and when wealthy people came to him and all the different strata of society? And they were watching him. They were observing his character. But not only had they seen his character, they had listened to his teaching. And for three or two and a half years now, he had been teaching them the deep truths of the spiritual world. And then, of course, they had seen his miracles. And they had watched as that blind man came and got his eyes open. They had observed as they saw Lazarus walk out of that tomb. They had seen all those miracles. They had heard his teaching. They had looked at his life and his character, and they had come to a conclusion. And so when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter gave him a classic, classic answer. I want you to mark it in your Bible there in the book of Matthew chapter number 16. And in verse number 16, Oh, it's one of the most important doctrinal truths in all of the Bible. And what is the truth? Simon Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. That's Peter's confession. And that is the foundation of our church today, the Florence Baptist Temple, and every other New Testament church. The foundation of our church is that statement, the statement about the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that, that this is the foundation. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Just keep your place there in Matthew, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 11. 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, and here's the verse. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. And he says that which is laid is Jesus Christ. So the title of the message, the foundation of our church, the Lord Jesus Christ. I go back almost 50 years now. It was the first Sunday in November in that old theater building. And I was preaching the first sermon I ever preached. I had no preaching experience when I came, and all the people that were there that day would say, amen. He didn't. And I stood before 18 people and announced my text to preach the first sermon of my ministry, the first sermon in this church. And it was from the same book I'm in today. It was the book of Matthew. It was over in chapter number 27, and here was the text. Pilate said to the group of people standing before him as they were preparing to kill Jesus, he said, what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I can still tell you the outline. It was a personal question. It was an important question. I went right down the line what kind of question it was. And the first message that was ever preached to this church was on the nature of Jesus Christ. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? And that's exactly the question we're still dealing with 49 years and 11 months later. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Because you see, everything hinges on that. The church, this church, 
and all true churches are established on this truth that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. We embrace that today. We are not embarrassed by that. We don't equivocate on that. We will not compromise that. That is a hill to die on. We believe that. We preach that. We practice that as best we're capable. And around the world this morning, while we sit here in a beautiful cushioned seat and an air-conditioned atmosphere, I tell you there are people giving their life's blood that are dying for that truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You go to the Middle East. At one time, there was a flourishing church, a large number of Christians in Lebanon. You go to Lebanon today, you will have to search hard to find a Christian. Syria had hundreds of thousands of churches. Paul was on the road to Damascus, the capital of Syria, when he was saved, and the church was established there. And Syria became a center of Christian activity for centuries after that. In fact, there were still about 400,000 Christians in Syria when this civil war started over here about four or five years ago, and you've heard of the persecution of those dear believers. If you were to go to Iran You think of Iran as a totally Muslim country. It's not always been so. There were as many Christians in Iran as there were Muslims in Iran until the last 10 or 15 years. There were hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians in the Middle East until 10 or 15 years ago when the rise of Islam came and they began to be persecuted. And today there are graves all over the Middle East. We don't even know how many Christians have died in the Middle East because they would not compromise the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, in Nigeria today, People are dying for it. And you've read about the churches where they've gone in, the Boko Haram terrorist group, and they've planted the bombs where they've gone in and strafed the whole audience with a machine gun. People are dying in Nigeria because they believe what this foundational truth is about. And we think of China. I read that just recently in China now, they had the state churches and they weren't very good churches, but they were at least, there was some modicum of, of biblical truth in them. And just recently, they went in and they took down the Ten Commandments off the wall of every church in China, and they replaced it with the sayings of Chairman Mao and Xi and all the Chinese communist leaders. I read that they've totally ceased having Sunday school in the state churches, the approved churches, not the underground church, of course, which is more fundamental, but... Even in those state churches now, Sunday school has been outlawed because they don't want another generation of Christians taught from the Word of God. And so this is a foundation of our church. It's the foundation of every true church. It is a belief worth dying for if we had to do so. You see, because if you're wrong about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter really what you're right about. It doesn't matter what you're right about if you're wrong on the person of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that really defines the church. Where there is no Christ, there is no church. Where there is no preaching of the cross, there is no church. 
It's not enough that the preachers stand and give little moralistic, feel good, live a good life and be kind to your neighbor sermons. It is the person of Christ that he is God in the flesh, that he lived on this earth a perfect life, that he died and he was resurrected, and that he's at the right hand of God today. That's the truth that will set men free. Verse number 17, verse 16, pardon me. Jesus said, and who do you say I am? He said, you're the Christ. Christ was the, the other word for that in the Hebrew was the Messiah. You're the Messiah. The Jews looked for a Messiah. They looked for a great human leader, one who would sit on the throne of David, the anointed one, the appointed one who would one day come, who was prophesied by the Hebrew prophets. And on this day, Peter said, you're the Messiah. And then he added on a second thing. The Messiah would be his humanity. But then he said, and you're the son of the living God. That's God in the flesh. That's his deity. In that one little statement, Peter said, you are both man and God. You're the one that we've looked for for all the centuries, and now you've come to be our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Look what Jesus said to him in verse 17. He said, you didn't come up with that on your own, Peter. You didn't come up with that on your own. The Father revealed that to you. That's divinely revealed truth that God has given to you. And then Jesus said to him in verse 18, now I want you to listen to this closely because this is important. Not that what I haven't said already is important, <laughs> but I really want you to grab this. I say unto you that you are Peter. Circle the word Peter there in your Bible. And Jesus used, he didn't call him Peter. He used the Greek word. The Greek word is you are Petros, Petros. And what is Petros? Petros is the Greek word for a little pebble. It's the Greek word for a little rock, like a boy would pick up and throw in a pond. Petros, you're a little pebble. But then notice what Jesus continued with. He said, but upon this rock, and what is the rock that Jesus said is Petra. See, it's a different form of the word. And what's a Petra? A Petra is like Mount Rushmore. Petra is like a mountain of rock. And Jesus didn't build his church on a little pebble. Jesus built his church on Mount Rushmore type rock. That's important because there are a lot of people today that believe that Peter was, uh, that Jesus built the church on Peter from misinterpreting this verse. Go down to verse 23. Oh, my soul, I hope he didn't build his church on Peter because he, in verse 23, Jesus turns to him and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he called Peter the devil a few verses later, so surely we don't want our church built on him, do we? No, he is not the foundation of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ, the deity and the humanity and the nature and the fullness of Jesus Christ is the foundation of every true church. Any church that's not built on Jesus 
is not a true church, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a New Testament church. And this truth, the truth that Christ is God, boy, it's under attack today. In a post-modern culture, you stand up in a university classroom and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is the only true way to heaven, and you would, you, you would almost be physically assaulted in some of the classrooms of our nation today. The world hates this truth because you destroy the foundation, you have destroyed the church, and Satan has been very, very successful at this point in time in destroying so many of the churches in the United States today. Now, continue with me in verse 18. There's something else. Jesus is not only the foundation of the church, but in verse 18, Jesus is the builder of the church. He's the foundation, but he's also the contractor. <laughs> he is the one who's doing the building. I want you to notice what he didn't say. Look at verse 18. He said, I will build my church. He is the builder. He's the one building our church. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you go build my church. He said, I'll build my church. He didn't say, I'll build your church. That's important. He's not going to do for us what he told us to do ourselves. Notice what else he didn't say. He didn't say, you build your church. It's really important to get a hold of what he said here. He said, I'll build my church. And he used a special word there, ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiastical in terms like that. And it was the term they used for the, the Greek assembly, the government, the, the, like this, our city council would be their government. And ecclesia was the called out elected representatives of the people there. And the church is a called out group of people who we have a common faith. We have a common belief in our salvation. We have a common mission together. We're a community, if you will, a redeemed community of people with a common belief and a common purpose or a common business. Now, think with me. Y'all thinking with me today? You're, you're, I, I'm, I want to make sure you're really with me here. Let me tell you something tragic that's happened in America. We're losing our sense of community. We're losing our sense of community. People no longer join civic clubs very much. They don't have time. They got their own private agendas. People are no longer as loyal as they once were to their corporations. Most people don't go to work for something, someone, somebody, somewhere, and stay there for their entire career. We move around. It's in our best interest to move. We're not very loyal even to our family institutions, and so we have a spiraling divorce rate. Or we don't even bother to get married because we don't value the institution of family anymore. We've got almost half of our babies being born without people living together in marriage, which tells you what we think of the family institutionally. It's not important to us anymore. And when it comes to the church, well, it's the same thing. We don't, we, 
we have bought into an idea that Charles Colson referred to, and I love this term. He said, Americans have bought into radical individualism. What is radical individualism? He means by that that our self-interest is so strong that it's replaced any sense of being a part of a larger cause or an institution. And so we don't see people who really support the country anymore. Patriotism, patriotism is at a very low level today in our country because we're, we're cynical about government. Well, we might be, but, but we're not willing to give ourselves to the cause of our government. We're not willing to give ourselves to civic causes and community causes as we once were because we're all inward focused. We are radically individual. And when it comes to the church, well, the big struggle that we're facing in every church in America, this church is facing it, is the faithfulness of its own people. It's not the people out there that's, that, that, that creates a, the, the, the constant fight we have for attendance and, and keeping the church going full-orbed. It's that today people say, my plans will supersede the plans of the church. I can remember a day when we would have a special occasion at the church and everybody mark it on their calendar. People don't do that anymore. Even the most faithful people we have sometimes, well, we've got plans. You see, we value personal interest above that of the institutional church. Many people today consider themselves to be Christians, but they have no strong attachment to any church. They have the idea, I can attend a service anywhere on the river bank or over to ball field or something for a few minutes, a little devotional thing, and, and I'll, uh, I'll be okay. I don't need to go to, quote, my church. I don't need to be supportive of it. Other people think of the church in a, uh, a spiritual way. They've made it a mystical thing, you know, the invisible church, the universal church. The, some of them even call it the true church, is inferring that local churches are not true churches. You know, the Bible never uses any of those words. The Bible, you won't find the word universal church in your Bible. You won't find the term invisible church in your Bible. All of those are man-made terms. The only church Jesus talked about here was a, an assembly of born-again, baptized people who were mobilized and organized to carry out His will upon the earth. That's a church. I want you to notice with me also in verse 18 the power of the church because I happen to think the church is still, even today, though we've lost influence in the world, I believe the church is the most powerful institution of all. And you say, oh, you're, you, 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 what are you thinking about, pastor? I mean, look at the power of government. Look at the power of media. But I'll show you something none of them can do. In verse 18, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, here's the idea. It's a false idea. Y'all with me? You listen to Here's a false concept of the church. 
I saw a cartoon of this. It was a picture of the church. It was like a fortress. It was like a big major fort. And it was all shut up, and even the drawbridge had been pulled up over the moat. And out here is the forces of evil, Satan and the devil and hell. And they're shooting arrows and slinging spears and, and, and all that kind of thing at the church, attacking the church. And the church is on the defense, and the church is shut down. It's a fortress. Well, that's not what the, the Bible's teaching here in verse number 18. The church is not on the defense. Hell is on the defense. The church is on the offense. The gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell shall not win. The church is, on, is the aggressor here. The church is the one that's supposed to be moving forward. I love an old song that you don't hear much anymore. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. And here's where, look at some of these other verses. Remember them with me. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. See, we put the devil on the run. We're not running from the devil. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver. <laughs> Man, do I like that. We quiver with fear. And when the church is the right kind of church, it's quivering. The foundations of hell are quivering when the church approaches because it has such power. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices. Loud your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. See, we're an army. We're mobilized. We're organized. We're going somewhere. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. We're all one body. We, one in hope and doctrine and one in charity. And then listen to this. What the saints established that we hold for true. What the saints believed that we believe too. Long as earth endureth, men the faith will hold. Kingdoms, nations, empires in destruction rolled. Man, I like that militancy, that aggressiveness, that we'll charge hell with a water pistol. I hate this weak, anemic, feminized, sissified Christianity that is so widespread today. I'm going to wake you all up before this is over. You see, the power of the church is not physical. The power of the church is not political. The power of the church is not financial. I'll tell you the power of the church. The power of the church is our ability to prevail against the gates of hell. The power of the, the word for hell here, do you look at your, in your Bible, verse 18, if you have a marginal reference there, if you look that word hell up, you know what you'll see? It's not referring to the lake of fire. It's Hades. Hades is the place of death. Do you know what the Bible is saying? The church has power over death. The gates of death will not prevail against the church. 
Well, you say, how do, what do you mean? We have church members die every day. That's right. They die right on time, just like everybody else. But it's talking in spiritual terms. It's talking about people who are dead in the wages of sin, that the church has the message that we can go to them and bring life. Jesus said, John 6, 63, Listen to my words, for they are spirit and they are life. The power of the church to prevail against the death, the gates of death, is that we as God's people can storm the gates of death with the gospel. And the gospel has the power to bring life to men's souls. And people who were dead in trespasses and sins live. And so when we go out there to that cemetery to take our loved ones who have passed away, we know it's not the last time we will see them. We know if they have trusted Christ as their Savior, we know that someday we will see them again because they may experience physical death, but they will never die. They have everlasting life, Jesus said. The power of the church then is its voice, not the voice of the preacher, and not the voice of the people, and not the voice of the choir. The power of the church is the voice that heralds and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to make dead men live again. And so when I say, that the church is the greatest organization that has ever existed. That's what I mean. Nothing else has the power to speak life into dead men. And Jesus ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit back to us. And what did he say? When he has come, he's going to indwell you, and he's going to bring life. He's going to bring life. One last thought, and quickly, verse 19. And then Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that's the mission of the church. The mission of the church. Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. Notice, if you will, he didn't give him the keys to the church. You hear that? The Pope has that written on his throne. He didn't give him the keys to the church. He gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The spiritual world, the dimension there of salvation. Keys are the symbol of authority. I've got a key here to get you in any door on the property. So that gives me authority to open the door, to lock the door, keep people in and get people out. A symbol of authority, open and close. And you know what Jesus was saying to us, church? I'll build my church and then I'll give you the keys. And you'll have the authority to let men in and let them out. Shut the door or open it to the kingdom of heaven. Pretty awesome, huh? so I can go and take the gospel 
and I can open the kingdom of heaven to people. And I can refuse to go and shut it down. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, we use that key when we give the gospel of Christ. And it brings life. Now, I'm going to use the key for a minute. I'm going to tell somebody here how today who is dead spiritually how to have life. I want to open the door for you. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how you're dressed or where you're, what your background is or your educational level or how much money you got or your race. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone away from God because we've all broken His law and we're all guilty. And if you can see yourself today as being lost, as being helpless, as being hopeless to do anything to save yourself, if you can see yourself as a guilty party in need of forgiveness, that Almighty God has charges against you and you want the charges removed, if you understand that God owes you absolutely nothing, that you have no standing at all in His presence, but that He's a God of grace and a God of love, and He extends unmerited favor to the people of this earth. If you can understand that, and look behind me and see that cross that represents there across 2,000 years ago where Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was crucified and suffered and paid for your sin. Yes, the sins of the world, but your sin personally. If you can see that, He became your substitute, your Redeemer, who redeemed you from all iniquity, then I want you to come. And I want you to receive Him. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.